Last week we talked about politics and racism, MLK weekend, and we called our church into a new dimension of thinking about the election this year and thinking about racial reconciliation on the grounds of our own fears. And I believe what happened in this room last Sunday is going out. I believe it's powerful. If you missed it, you need to check it out. But in one month, we've gone sexuality, politics and racism. And, and now today we're getting into something even more sensitive and controversial. And I am literally like, wow, this is the preaching gauntlet of all gauntlets. Why did I set this course up like this? But at the same time, I want to tell you, this has been a special month for me as your pastor, because it's been hard, but it hasn't been, it hasn't been uh, a burden. So you know, Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what it's felt like this past month. Do you want to know why I think it's felt that way? Because so many of you have been praying. We have been serious about prayer coming into this year, and I personally have felt it. So I just want to say, this is totally selfish of me, but I'm going to say it. You ready? please don't stop praying for me because this series is over. Because I'm like loving the energy spiritually that I'm getting in the word of God. I'm loving the revelation from his spirit. And there's something powerful about the collective church body praying for leaders to continue to encounter God. So don't stop praying because next Sunday we're gonna get off the train of the gauntlet of controversial issues. Keep praying, keep pressing in. Next Sunday's gonna be really, really, really good. God's put something on my heart that I cannot wait to preach. But to finish out our 2020 series, Full of Grace and Truth, what's the final issue issue that I feel like culture is pointing at the church going, you better say something. And the church has mostly been silent or completely swung and missed on these issues. It's anxiety and depression, anxiety and depression. I love it. As soon as the fire alarm went off, I was like, of course, anxiety Sunday. This is awesome. This is great. Thank you, Lord, for making me live out what I'm about to teach before I teach it. Because the heart of the battle in, in, a, in a human being trying to follow Jesus, the heart of the battle and anxiety is the battle for control. And there's something that I felt the moment those lights came on and that fire alarm went off that was like, nothing you can do about this. You're not in control of this. And I think God wanted me to feel that standing in front of you. I'm glad he didn't do it when I was in the middle of my point that I'm going to make about suicide, because that would have been like, oh man, I don't know how I'm going to come back from that. But he did that in a gracious way just to show me. And I think just to show you through me, that the battle uh, that we're going to be talking about today is really ultimately a battle over control. And I think we're dealing with a generation that has never felt more out of control, but feels like they have a right to control. And the more they try to grab on, the more anxious, the more depressed, and the more disconnected we become. I need to say at the beginning, this is a baseline foundational message. I'm not going to be able to cover everything that needs to be covered from the Bible about anxiety and depression in one sermon. I couldn't do that with a year's worth of sermons. I couldn't do that with a book. There's so much that needs to be said and so much that needs to be dealt with. Also, I want to say that these are holistic issues, holistic problems with holistic solutions. What do I mean by that? we talk about anxiety and depression, we cannot only talk about it like it's just a spiritual issue. It's also a physical issue. It's also a mental issue. And so I want to say I am not a medical doctor. 
Shocking, I know. I, I, I do not have the ability to tell you everything that you need to do and all the steps that you need to take in your particular season, and I'm not going to pretend to. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor. I don't know all of the sciences that go into this issue, but I do know when you're dealing with something this complicated, one of the mistakes the church has made over and over and over again is trying to make a black and white stance on something that's so holistic. We've got to talk about physical health. There could very well be something chemically going on in your brain, in your friend's brain, in your family member's brain that needs to be addressed medically. There are thousands of people who are going to be in this building today who need, legitimately need to see a counselor and a professional to uncover some of the reasons why you are as anxious as you are and you struggle with depression the way that you do. And it's bigger than, hey, read these verses and pray these prayers. And until the church wakes up and goes, we're not going to fix this with a couple of prayers and a couple of sermons and a couple of songs, we're going to continue to look like the rest of the world. And I got to be honest with you, I think this is the issue we could stand out the most over the course of the next decade because the world is freaking out all around us. Statistics tell us that suicide is higher than it has ever been, and it's not even close. It's only rising. When you Google some of the statistics that are going on in our day, it does not take a genius to figure out we have a major issue on our hands, and for the most part, the church looks no different than the world. So the world around us is in a pit of anxiety and despair and depression, taking their lives at faster rates than ever before. And they look at the people who claim they have the peace and the hope of the world living on the inside of them. And it's pretty much like looking at the exact same thing in both worlds. That's the opportunity that we have. Because I believe as heavy of an issue as this is, and as dark as things have become, I believe Jesus wants to do something over the course of the next decade to set more people free than ever before, to shine light in the darkness, and to bring people out of the pits of depression and despair and suicidal thoughts and into a new level of walking in the hope that's available in Jesus. That's very easy for me to say. That's actually more complicated for us to practice Of all the statistics that I read this week, I think the one that stood out to me the most, as in like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just read that, was this line from Psychology Today. I want you to read it. We'll have it on the screen. The average high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. Think about this. The average student in our high schools today, if they were in high school 70 years ago, they would have fit the profile for the average psychiatric patient, meaning their levels of being anxious and having an issue controlling their thoughts and being able to actually function as a normal human being would warrant a response 70 years ago that would look like you need to see somebody and you might need to go away for a while. That's the average high school student. And when I read that, I was blown away, but then I was even more blown away by this. This is just, Wow. You ever read an article and then you realize that this article wasn't written yesterday? And you're like, that date changes everything. Look at this. This was not a recent stat. This was a stat from 2008. And I know some of us in the room feel like, oh, that was like last year. No, it wasn't. (laughs) Um, Anybody watch This Is Us in the room? Anybody freaked out when there was that burglar with Randall? Oh, some of you are like, I haven't caught up yet. 
gets intense. And you should be caught up, so don't be mad at me for ruining it for you. But there was a scene where they did a flashback uh, a season ago in Randall's life, and it was a, it was a flashback to 2008. And I was like, what are they doing? They, you don't need to flash back to 2008. That's now. Like, oh, it's not. That was an entire decade ago. I love it. I, I saw a meme this week that says, you know what I love about 1980? is It was 20 years ago, just like 2000 was. Like in our heads, 1980 was 20 years ago, but no, it was actually 40 years ago. And I think our, our, we're not like discovering how quickly time is ticking. This statistic was written about people who are now in their early 30s and late 20s. People like me. People in the millennial generation. Here's what a lot of people don't realize. Millennials are 25 and older. So when you're talking to your friends about, oh, those millennials, those college kids. Hey, you know the students at Auburn University are not millennials. They're actually Gen Z. And you're like, oh, good, they can get out of that crooked and depraved generation. No, uh, Gen Z is actually, some, some experts would say, twice as anxious as millennials. We have a major, major issue on our hands. And I believe, like I said, we have the opportunity to stand out like never before. And I believe that today, when we open our Bibles and discuss this issue, we need to have a moment to at least pause and with humility and care charge forward in the confidence of the Holy Spirit. And what I mean is, what I'm talking about from this stage today is an area where darkness and sin and specifically Satan has taken so much ground that even me opening my mouth about it today is a risk because we will be on the radar of hell. This is a darkness issue. The voice in someone's head as they slowly erode in their thought life to actually believing that this world would be a better place without them, that their family would be better off without them. And that voice that repeats itself, that says, you're not worth anything. You need to take your life. Your pain will go away. Everything will get better if you will just take your own life. That's not a misfire of neurons, simply. That's the devil himself. That's darkness. And so when we charge into that, we do so humbly and recognizing that we can't just talk about these theoretical issues and read a couple verses and pray for people. We've got to be a little bit sobered up in our minds to know lives are at stake today. Statistics tell us somebody in this room today, probably multiple, have something in mind over the course of the next month or the next six months that involves taking their own life. Today, in this church, so I, I want us to feel that, and I want us to humbly approach the throne of grace, and I want us to maybe with a little bit of reverence realize how much we are losing in this area, but also recognize that the enemy is on borrowed territory. When he takes ground from those who are children of God in anxiety and depression and suicide, that is not his ground because scripture tells us that the blood of Jesus purchased for God those who are being saved. What does that mean? That means if the blood of Jesus covers your life, you've been bought. You no longer belong to the kingdom of darkness. You belong to the kingdom of light and God wants to rescue you and your life is not going to end this year. You are going to stand in the land of the living and proclaim the goodness of God. And we're going to charge into this ground confidently. I, I, I get it. We, we do need to be humble. We do need to be reverent, but we don't need to be intimidated. 
We need to speak boldly. We need to speak courageously because literally people's lives depend on it. If you brought your Bible, hold it up all over this room. Hold it up. Wow. So good that you held on to it. How many of you took your Bible out to the fire drill? Good. You're all good. Yeah, you're something like, I left it in my seat. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. No Bible drill today. We don't have the time. Come back for the seven for that. 1 Kings chapter 18, chapter 19. Sorry, I want to tell you about chapter 18 real quick. This is, a, this is an unlikely place to begin a discussion about anxiety and depression and suicide. But it's a story that I think far too often has been neglected and ignored and needs to be brought to the forefront for us to understand how common these issues are. Some of you are like, where is First Kings? It's close to the beginning of your Bible. Wow. I say like Romans and you guys are there in five seconds. First Kings threw everybody off today. That was hilarious. I want to tell you a story about a prophet named Elijah. Elijah is one of the most famous, if not the most well-known and powerful prophet of the Old Testament. And if you've never read his story, I'd highly encourage you to. But we're going to read about a moment in Elijah's life where he sinks into a pit of anxiety and depression and suicidal thoughts at the most unlikely time in his entire life to sink into that hole. Some of you are like, there's a story in the Bible about somebody who's close to God who went into the pit of despair. Yes. And it actually happened one chapter after the greatest moment in his life spiritually. If you've never read 1 Kings chapter 18, I encourage you to read it this week. I would argue this is the most epic chapter of the entire Old Testament. Except for maybe creation. That was pretty epic. (laughs) Makes the world. But besides that, this is... This is unbelievable. So what would happen in the Old Testament in Israel is prophets and kings overlapped. Prophets would speak the word of God, and there was a king of Israel and a king of Judah, Judah, the southern two tribes in Israel, and those kings would receive the word of God from the prophets, and their willingness to obey the word of God would directly impact how well things went for the people of God during that time period. So if you had a righteous king, that was a king who was listening to the prophets and abiding by the word of God. If you had an unrighteous king, a disobedient king, that would be one that allows for idolatry or allows for practices that God specifically said no to. But then you have the most wicked king in all of Israel's history, and his name was Ahab. And he was so wicked that he married a woman named Jezebel. That's where that name comes from. If you want to know how wicked they are, try to find a friend named Ahab or Jezebel. We don't use these names anymore because they are literally two of the most wicked characters of the Old Testament. And what Ahab did, he didn't just allow for idolatry. He sought it out. He built idols. He hired prophets who were going to prophesy for other gods. His wife, Jezebel, hated the prophets of the Lord, the God of Israel, and so she sought to have them all killed. When she did that, she specifically wanted one dead, Elijah, because Elijah was renowned for being so powerful. He would literally raise people from the dead after praying. He saw more miracles. When you read his story, you will be tempted to think that this guy is a superhuman. 
It's unbelievable. Well, in first Kings chapter 18, Elijah has been hiding for three and a half years. He proclaimed a drought in Israel and said, listen, it's not going to rain because of how disobedient you guys have become. And he knows his life's at stake. And so he's hiding. Well, God says, Elijah, come out of hiding. We're going to end the drought and you're going to make a move and you're going to make my name famous. And so in first Kings chapter 18, Elijah stands up in front of all of Israel and challenges 800 prophets of other gods, basically to a spiritual duel. It's amazing. And he says, listen, here's what we're going to do. We're both going to have a sacrifice in the middle. You put your sacrifice over there. I'll put mine right here and we'll pray and we'll ask our God to pour fire down on the sacrifice. You go first. We'll see how it goes. And for an entire day, the prophets of Baal are crying out and cutting themselves and doing everything they can to get the attention of a God who does not exist. And as they do that, Elijah starts biblically trash talking. And he says, oh yeah, maybe, hey, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe his like hearing's gone bad. Maybe you need to shout louder. Maybe he's not noticing. Maybe you need to hurt yourself. Maybe he literally says this. Maybe he's using the bathroom. And he's, he's, just, he's just busy. He's over there. This is really in your Bible. And after a day of this, Elijah goes, okay, we're going to settle this. We're going to settle that my God, the Lord, the God of Israel is the only God. Here's what we're going to do. He sets up 12 stones by the sacrifice to say, this is the God of Israel, the same one who led us out of captivity in Egypt and into the promised land. And then he says, okay, I'm going to call down fire from heaven. Hold up. Get me a big jug of water. Remember, three and a half year drought, water's valuable. And he says, Pour it on the sacrifice. Like, that's not, you want fire to come down. Water's not what you want on the sacrifice. He goes, pour it on the sacrifice. And then they do, and then he goes, do it again. And then they do, and he goes, do it again. Three times they pour water on his sacrifice. And then he goes, okay, God, make yourself known. Rain fire down on this sacrifice and show these people who you are. And he does. And Elijah says, kill all the prophets of Baal. And the people of Israel say, the Lord is God. I love that. That's what Elijah's name means. The Lord is God. It's actually why we named our second daughter Elliot. The Lord is God. After that, Elijah looks at Ahab and says, hey, guess what? It's going to rain. It hasn't rained in three and a half years. God's going to come through. It's going to rain. Of course, Ahab's happy because he's the king. And then Elijah prays, and guess what? It rains. And his assumption this entire time is that this will finally be the end of all of his hiding. This will be the end of all of his misery. Now the people of God are going to return to the Lord. First Kings chapter 19, I give you so much time. Verse 1, if you're there, say I'm there. Now, Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey in the wilderness. He came into a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. 
There he went into a cave and spent the night. I want to go back to those uh, first few verses. Immediately after the greatest victory of his life, Elijah gets word that Jezebel still wants to kill him and she's coming after him and his response is to run away in fear. And not even making it a day, he runs away, hides in a bush, and essentially tells God, I've had it, I'm done, I just want to die. I just want the breath out of my lungs. I don't even want to be conscious. This pain is too much. And then he goes to sleep, and then he receives a meal from heaven. That's not enough to get him out of bed. He goes back to sleep and receives another one. Travels 40 days and 40 nights, and I want to stop after the end of that journey, because I want you to see in this first section of this unlikely story, anxiety and depression and suicide are not something the scriptures are silent about. And this is Elijah who's in it. You're like, Miles, how how do we know it was anxiety? Because anxiety is an irrational ability to project fear into the future. Anxiety is our, even with rational thought, telling us all that we're worried about is not right and we need to just change our minds. It doesn't matter. We project fear into the future and hold on to the fact that nothing is going to get better. If anything, it is going to get worse. And the reason why I say Elijah's irrational is because I know what happened in chapter 18. And so if you're going to pray one prayer and call down fire from heaven to engulf your sacrifice and see God come through for you more than anyone else in the entire history of the Bible so far, that's pretty amazing. And then right after that, after three and a half years of drought, you're going to ask God to pour rain down, and he does. When you get word that a queen wants you dead, what should you do? If I'm Elijah, I'm like... That's cute. Let me pray real quick and fix this problem. But anxiety doesn't work in the rational realm. Even if you can explain something to somebody, it doesn't take away the fact that that fear is that real. I'll add this on. What was Elijah running in fear for? He was scared that he was going to die. So he prays and asks God to die? Hey, dude, that's the thing you're afraid of. Like, what? Why, why are you asking God to take your life if you're afraid that this woman and her army is going to take your life? That's how anxiety works. And he is in such a pit of despair that he is actually not able to project anything positive into the future. And a adjustment of his prayer life is not going to fix it because the problem is internal. That's the first thing I want to say about anxiety is we have to stop treating anxiety the way we treat other sinful struggles and pretending like the people struggling with it can make it go away if they just try harder or pray harder. That's not the answer. And the more we say that, the more we prolong their issues because the more they believe that their prayers don't work and that God's not real. And so with Elijah, you just want to jump through the story and go, hey, your prayers are kind of more powerful than the average person. Just pray about it. No, anxiety's different. Anxiety has to be engaged on an internal healing level, and you'll see that in a second. Why do I use the word depression? Now, depression comes in many forms, and there's many different types. But when I'm talking about depression, either talking about it clinically or just something that you personally struggle with, I'm talking about the type of despair where you believe life cannot and will not get better. 
And it's usually marked by two things, isolation and separation, usually into your bed. And Elijah is like, I'm, I'm, I'm all alone and I just want to lay here. And if you've ever been in a pit of despair like that, you know that even if you have the physical strength to get up, you cannot get up. Did you notice that he couldn't make it one day on his own strength and the depression knocked him out? But then when he had a meal from heaven, he went 40 days and 40 nights on his journey. When you're running on empty from within, there is no amount of cognizant agreement you can make to get yourself up and going. You need help. And then he says, I've had enough. Take my life. Now, the last thing I want this sermon to become is, is the, the sermon where Miles talked about suicide. That's not what I'm going for here. The same way two weeks ago, I didn't want that sermon to be, oh, the sermon where Miles talked about same-sex attraction. It's a major issue, and we need to talk about it, and we need to create a platform for people to know how to relate to other people, but also to speak to those in the room who feel so isolated and so alone and like they are the only one. And so I want to say just two quick things about suicide, but then we'll bring it all together, continuing to talk about anxiety and depression. Number one is this. I believe the church of Jesus Christ should be the safest place in the world for somebody struggling with suicidal thoughts. I believe they should walk in here and feel like they can say out loud the secrets and the darkest places within them, knowing that they are loved and knowing that this struggle is a common struggle that other people are carrying. And it is because the church hasn't provided a space for people to be that honest and real about this, that so many people in the darkness of night are taking their life. They truly feel like they're the only one. And when Elijah's crying out to God going, I just don't even want to be alive. Some of you have actually been there. And I don't mean like you went through a breakup and you thought, oh, I don't even want to eat dinner. I'm so upset. I mean like you were thinking this world would be better and my pain would go away if I wasn't breathing. Some of you have been there. And the scary thing about some of you, as I say that, is you've never told anybody that. And part of the reason why you've never told anybody that is because there's this cloud over mental illness in the church that we've got to do away with. Just like we talked about two weeks ago with same-sex attraction, we got to lift this cloud beyond anxiety being acceptable to the degree where mental illness and suicidal tendencies are actually acceptable to talk about in church. Here's what I mean. We're totally fine talking about anxiety attacks and panic attacks in church. Oh, you're not alone. we're all in this together. We're all struggling with this. This is a major issue. You start dipping more into, hey, I didn't get out of bed for two months and I have not found the will to live so far in this new decade and I'm thinking about taking my life. You start going into topics like that and then it's like our, our posture changes from a level of comfort of, oh yeah, we're all with you to, ooh, you're a little crazy. You're, listen, we... We have to stop reacting and creating the very cloud that is causing us to not look different than the rest of the world. And here's why I preached on Elijah today. I don't like this for Elijah, but I love this for our sake. God allowed a man who had a connection with God like no other to go through these tendencies. So God could have let this story be about Pardon my, my phrasing, but like a biblical scrub. You know what I'm talking about? Like Samson, who you're like, dude, weak sauce. Like, seriously, she keeps trying to kill you. Break up with Delilah. What is wrong with you? 
Or like Judas, you're like, okay, Judas, yeah, of course, like, you know, you're in a bad spot. But, and, and everybody in, in the scriptures is absolutely broken except for Jesus. I'm not saying that. But I love that it's Elijah that we're talking about today. Because in the book of James, James has to remind the early church that Elijah was a human being. He's like, Elijah prayed, and he was a human just as we are. Do you know why James had to say that? Because there was a tendency to believe, this guy is different. He's a superhuman. He literally prays prayers, and God physically acts from heaven. And it is Elijah that finds himself in this pit. It is Elijah that is so knocked out, he cannot get up out of the bed of isolation that he made for himself. And he's so down deep in that despair that he's going, I just want to die. If you're here and you felt like the church can't relate, like the Bible can't relate, let me say loud and clear. If you are in a pit of despair, you have company. And this is the safest place in the world for you to struggle. We have to talk about these things and we have to create an environment where somebody can say out loud that they are thinking about taking their life without risking or having fear that they're going to be looked at differently because of saying that. That's number one. The other side of it is, I think the way we talk about, commemorate, memorialize, and even romanticize suicide has to be checked. I want to say this with so much compassion because the stats tell me that almost every person in this room has somehow been touched by suicide. Some of you within your immediate family, some of you a friend that you were once close to, and this sermon in and of itself is already making you cringe. I think the church always has to be a hospital for the broken, and we have to care for people who are hurting and who have gone through unspeakable tragedy at the same time. I have a, say we, we as a church have a major problem with some of the responses to suicide that our culture and the big C church has made normal for the sake of comforting grieving family and friends. When we say things like, I hate that that happened, but so glad his or her pain is gone, we are saying the most harmful things in the world to people who are carrying suicidal thoughts and depression. Because the lie that they're believing, talk to them, they'll tell you, the lie that they're believing is that your pain will go away, everyone's life will be better, and you'll be remembered positively by people around you if you do this. That's what the devil's trying to tell them in one ear. Well, when they watch someone commit suicide, and they watch the whole world commemorate them. And if it's somebody who claimed to be a follower of Jesus, you watch the church go, he's in heaven, she's in heaven, pain's gone. What does that do for them? It makes them go, this works. That delivers everything that the liar in my head is promising. And we're confirming it. So that's part of the reason why every time the celebrity or well-known figure commits suicide, you know the suicide rate rises by an average of 10%. Higher depending on the notoriety of the person who actually did it. It's because of how much we rally around the person because we don't want one act of weakness to completely negate their memory. I get that. We need to celebrate them well and we need to comfort the family. But at the same time, if we're only highlighting the goodness of the person for the sake of comforting those who are grieving, it's the people who are thinking about committing suicide that are losing out as we grieve like that because we're confirming every lie that they believe. 
No one's saying things like, that's awful for his family. How is she going to raise them? This is the worst thing that has ever happened and it's an act of the devil himself. Not to get angry at the guy who did it, but to say it for what it is, it's not okay. God does not answer Elijah's prayer. That never happens. When Elijah prays, God answers. But when Elijah says, take my life, God goes, I got nothing for you. Because God will never answer your prayer when you pray to give up. God will never say that is okay for you to end your life. Ever. And so I just feel like there's a sense of sobriety that has to happen in the church to go, we have to comfort grieving families well. But if we land... If we feel like we're in a scale and we go, okay, we got to comfort them well, can we be fully grace and fully truth and somehow care for those who are carrying this burden? I'll give you an example, and I promise it's going to be the end of this little section that's super intense, and, and I hope I'm making sense, and I hope you know I'm with you and for you if you have someone close to you who has taken their life. I've never been in the pit of despair called depression. I've never struggled with suicidal thoughts. I've had friends take their life. One of them I played basketball with in high school. I don't understand everything about it, but I'm so with you if you're hurting today. Here's an example of what I'm talking about, though. I was at a conference about seven years ago, arena, similar to Passion, loaded out with young people, and I I was a youth pastor. So in front of me, there's one girl whose father committed suicide. She literally found him hanging in the garage, 19 years old, and there's another girl on this side who's... I know from counseling conversations with her and her small group leader, she was thinking about taking her life. The preacher gets up there and says, I want to talk to everyone about suicide for just one minute. And he says, I want to warn you that if you're in this room and you are believing the lie that suicide will take your pain away, I don't want to make a point blank. This is him talking. He said, I don't want to make a point blank theological statement, but I do want to say that if the action that your life ends up arriving at is the eliminating of your existence, you should not hold on to the comfort that when you die, you will be in the presence of Jesus and welcomed into heaven. That's what he said. I didn't say that. And I'll tell you what I think about that in a second. In that moment, remember where I'm sitting, I've got somebody whose dad just killed himself and I got somebody thinking about suicide. That was such a divided moment for me because I was like, I hate this for her because her dad was not a believer. I absolutely hate that she has to sit through this and hear this, but at the same time, and knowing this girl, the other girl's parents, I was like, I love that she's hearing this and I love that she knows that the lies in her head are not speaking the truth. And so it's, it's this scale that we feel like we've got, oh, how do you be compassionate, but how do you be truthful? And you got to stay full of Jesus. So here's, here's what I would say about that. And you might be wondering like, oh my gosh, does, does Miles believe that if you commit suicide, you go to hell? No, I believe the Bible. The Bible teaches that every single sin, including suicide, is covered by the blood of Jesus. Okay, the only unforgivable sin is blasphemy, which is a lifelong rejection of the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ and in a moment of weakness, you take your life. I do believe that you go to heaven. But that statement, if you are in Christ, is one that we have grown way too comfortable claiming to be our own because we prayed a prayer when we were in middle school and not necessarily understood the power of perseverance in the life of a believer. 
So hear me loud and clear. I don't know if you go, did he go to heaven when he died? I don't know. I'm not God. I do know if he or she is in Christ, whatever they did, covered by the blood, okay? Because they did not resist the Holy Spirit. They allowed the Holy Spirit to come in through and change them. So it's not something that I can, in a black and white way, go, okay, well, well, this person is going and this person's not because we do have evidence of perseverance here, but we don't, no, that's not the point. The point is we still got people alive and breathing who are thinking about taking their life and we have to tell them the truth and we have to do it in love and we have to welcome them into community and we have to make sure they know, they know that we want them here. And if you're here and you're in the pit of despair and suicide, I'm not intending at all to scare you today. I'm intending you to wake up and actually open up to us. I can't speak for every church, but I can tell you about this church. If you don't have the will to live, if you don't have the strength to go on one more day, please let us have that will for you. Please let us fill you with strength on the inside so that you'll go on for one more day. Please stay, stay with us. Do not go. And know that you're surrounded by people who love you. So I think we've got to find a way to talk about this well, but I do think we've got to talk about the truth of God's word. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying it's okay not to be okay so long as you see that, that messaging correctly. Can we put that on the screen? So this is what is being said right now about mental health in our world right now. It's okay not to be okay. We have a three-digit code that people can call if they're thinking about committing suicide, which is awesome. But I've been asked by many of you, do we agree with this statement? And my answer would be, that depends. That depends on how the statement ends. There's two options for how you need to see this, and we need to, we need to clarify which one we are. Can we put it on the bottom? It's okay not to be okay, period. It's okay not to be okay, comma. The difference is one's a finished thought, total and complete, and one leaves room for what God wants to do in and through someone's life. Yes, it's okay not to be okay, but it is not okay to end the sentence right there. Jesus never leaves you the way he finds you. He loves you too much. And the process of your healing and your growth into the joy that God has given you, that might be a lifelong process called continual suffering and misery that grows into the joy that's available in Jesus. But we will never say, it's okay not to be okay. Just sit in your pit of despair and be miserable for the rest of your life. And if you take your life, you take your life. No, we'll be the, ro- the ones running to your house to talk you out of the most destructive decision you will ever make. It's okay not to be okay okay, but Jesus does not leave us that way. And so the story must go on. And the story goes on for Elijah. Unfortunately, I do not have time to read what happens next. I'm going to tell you like a, just a brief overview of it. If you want to read that on your own time this week, you absolutely positively need to. But what happens after this is Elijah has his encounter with the still small voice. Anybody grow up in church? You remember this? So God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah says, everybody wants to kill me, and I'm the only prophet left. Everybody wants me dead, so that's what I'm doing here. And then, it's interesting, because when God talks to Elijah, he says, hey, you're not the only one. I've got 7,000 in Israel. If you're here struggling with anxiety or depression, you are not the only one. You want to know why Elijah thinks he's the only one? Because he chooses isolation. Isolation is a choice. And that is the first choice that the enemy wants you to agree to if you've been in the pit of despair before. You're not the only one. But when God meets Elijah, this is so interesting. There's a storm, there's, there's an earthquake, there's wind, and there's fire. And God's not in any of those supernatural signs. It says there was, there was wind, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. There was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. There was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And then there was a gentle whisper. And that's where the Lord was. 
Some call it a still, small voice. Watch this. It's because Elijah had seen God do miraculous things on the outside. And what Elijah needed in this moment of his life was not for God to supernaturally demonstrate that he's real out there. What Elijah needed is for a still small voice to speak to the war inside of his heart and bring peace. The war for your relationship with Jesus is the war for your own spirit on the inside. And it's not ever going to be fixed by a change in an external situation. It's going to be fixed and healed over time by a change in your relational connection to God. So we think, you're right, you, you, you struggle with anxiety? I know many of you do. You struggle with worry? You think what's going to make that go away is if you have more control over how events unfold so that you won't sit there paralyzed all the time? What scripture teaches is that it's the exact opposite that brings peace. It's not in gaining control that we feel peace. It's in giving control. And it's in understanding on the inside, I'm not in control. And that's actually a good thing. And what Elijah gets is what so many of us need. Some of us think if God would just prove to me that he is real, if he would rain fire from heaven, if he would do this, what if what God wants to do more than anything is whisper into your soul, you're going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I've got this. And the fact that you're not in control is actually a good thing. So I got one thing to send you out with this week. Don't have several points, just have one line. And it's going to sound super familiar if you've been coming to ACC for a while. But I believe this one revelation about who God is, is the single most important revelation in the Bible to walking in peace, free from anxiety and fear. Are you ready for it? I know this is a heavy one, guys. Here it is. Surrender controlling the story by trusting the shepherd. Surrender controlling the story by trusting the shepherd. Somebody say, I'm a sheep. So what's crazy about that is that's become like second nature to our church to talk about. We're all sheep and we have a shepherd. But I actually preached that sermon series on anxiety two years ago. So a lot of the people in this room don't even know what that means and don't even know what that season was like for our church. Here's what we discovered. When Jesus claims to be our good shepherd, and he is insinuating that we are sheep who follow after his voice, he is claiming that our source of peace on the journey of life that we are walking is always whether or not we can discern the sound of his voice. It's the voice of Jesus that brings peace to the inner heart that's in turmoil. And it's the voice of Jesus that over time overcomes the voices of lies and darkness that are crippling so many within the sound of my voice. And the way you get out over time, this is your battle. Some of you, your battle to do this might be counseling. Some of you, your battle to do this might be medication. Some of you, your battle to do this might be the discipline to read your Bible or to participate in a community group. Remember, this is a holistic approach. It's not one thing for everybody, but it is this one thing as a core issue because the root of what's happening is a battle for control and a battle for value and validation. And what God wants to do in your heart and my heart is turn us over through surrender to give God permission to be the powerful one who's setting the path and put us in submission as we allow him to be who he says he is, the good shepherd. So I'm going to read you the most peaceful and calming chapter in the Bible. I'm going to read you three verses to start, and I just want you to receive this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. 
He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. I love that. You can find so much peace in this chapter. He leads me beside quiet waters. You know, God will lead you beside quiet waters, but you have to drink. I do fear that our conversation about anxiety and depression has drifted so far into victimhood that people do not realize the power that they themselves do have to participate in healing. And that power might look like, help, somebody help me. I'm not saying that it's something like, you need to be more disciplined. I'm saying you, you do have to drink. You do have to say something. He guides me along the right path for his namesake. Here's comfort for every young person in the room struggling with anxiety about their future. If you follow Jesus, you want to know why he'll always lead you to the right place? Because it's for his namesake, not yours. Anxiety is really an issue of pride because you think you're so important that you can't possibly miss it. And Jesus goes, come here, little sheep. I'm going to get you where you need to go because I'm awesome. Because when a sheep ends up somewhere, does that reflect more on the sheep or the shepherd? Whether or not you get where God has called you to get reflects more on God than it does on you. If your job is to surrender and submit, you will never end up in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. You can find comfort today in going, oh, it's not up to me and that's a good thing. Yes, you're a sheep. He's the shepherd. Embrace it. Turn over trust and let him be the one who guides you. Because if he gets you to the wrong place, guess what? It's on him. And if he gets you to the wrong place, then guess what? He's not God and you should not come here and we should all disconnect from trying to conform our lives to the truth but he is that good and he is the good shepherd now watch this this is where we'll close even though i walk through the darkest valley i will fear no evil for you are with me your rod and your staff they comfort me you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies even though i walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Here's the thing about that verse. I believe that verse describes in detail what so many of us are carrying in anxiety and depression. That he says the, the, the valley of the shadow of death, meaning it's not really death, it's just a shadow. I'm scared of something that's not really there. What does Jesus do to walk you through what you're scared of that's not even really there? He walks you through it. The way out of debilitating anxiety is through it. This is not an issue that you're going to come forward and our prayer team is going to pray away your anxiety like you're somehow going to be fixed in one prayer. That happens sometimes, very rarely, but for the most part, I would say this is a journey that God wants to walk you through, not around. But where does your comfort come from? Do not miss this. Look up here. Your comfort comes from knowing that you're not alone and you never will be. Why? Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I'm so awesome? No, I'm a sheep. For you are with me. If Jesus is with you, you might be going through something that feels so much bigger than you, like it is going to overtake you. But the peace for a sheep walking through a dark valley doesn't come from being told how it's all going to work out. That can't fix a sheep. The darkness is all around. The enemies are all around. This is too much for me. This is too much for me. And it doesn't help to have another sheep come alongside you and go, hey, calm down. It's going to be all right. <laughs> hey, trust God. Philippians 4. Cast all your anxiety on him. First Peter. Just pray. Come on. Like, I'm trying. Everything is closing in. The peace comes from the voice of the shepherd. And here's what's crazy. We get to be the voice of the shepherd to people who are lost in this sea of brokenness. If you're here today 
and the fear of the future that you can't control is overwhelming you. I'm not here to tell you how everything plays out or that everything's gonna be okay. But I am here to tell you if you're following Jesus, he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And peace comes from the promises of God, not by discovering the paths of man. You got a promise, hold on to it. Let's stand up all over this room. We're gonna worship before we leave today. I wanna ask you to put your Bibles away. Let's all close our eyes in this space. I would ask you to respect what God is doing in so many lives right now because literally statistics tell us that somebody could be deciding right now if it's worth it to go on. And if that is you in this room today, I want you to know as you bow your head before God that you are seen, that you are loved, and that your story is not going to end with destruction to yourself and everyone around you. God is saying by you being here today that that is not going to be the end. You will taste the goodness of God in the land of the living. If you're here today and a fear that you're projecting into the future has totally taken you captive. I wanna pray for you and release you in Jesus' name to go follow him as the good shepherd. If that's you, would you just raise your hand in this place? If that's you, fear of the future is just crushing you right now. Father, you see every hand raised toward you saying, I am so beaten by this right now, I need help. God, would you cover them with your love, with your peace? Would you overwhelm them with the idea and the fact that peace does come from letting you be the one who's in control of everything? Would you cover them with your voice? God, more mistakable than ever, would you be whispering to people with a still small voice as we sing this song? Would you be whispering to people, peace, I'm with you, I love you. God, say what only you can say, do what only you can do in Jesus' name.